Hello and welcome to Staying In with me, Jan Powell. I'm exploring how people are coping as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to spread. Over a third of the world's 5.5 billion people have been in some kind of lockdown, staying at home because of the pandemic. And I'm talking to a few of them in very different parts of the world to find out what they're experiencing. The local rules, the frustrations, the highs and lows, and what, if anything, we all have in common. Today I'm talking to George Powell, a journalist and filmmaker who's lived and worked in Rio de Janeiro for the past six years. He also happens to be my son, which certainly makes this recording a bit different, on a personal level anyway. George has been living through and reporting on the COVID pandemic since the start and has seen at first hand its devastating effects in Brazil, which now has the second highest number of cases after the United States. Hi, George. Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It feels a bit strange talking to you in your professional capacity. Well, I'm a huge podcast fan, and uh, this is my very first time appearing on one. So I'm uh, very excited to be here. Thank you. Well, look, tell me a bit about where you're living in Rio. What can you see out of your window? Looking out of my window, you will see a long valley um, surrounded by thick green subtropical forest with a road winding down the middle of it, uh, opening out onto a big square where you'll find the Morro do Castro favela, which is located about an hour from Rio de Janeiro, depending on traffic. And um, yeah, we're in a place called Niterói, which is over the bridge from uh, Rio de Janeiro. And uh, yeah, it's just a little fairly isolated favela community with between six thousand and uh, ten thousand people it sounds amazing uh, a, a really uh, unusual uh, location for most people i mean for us who've never been to rio we've got a bit of a stereotype view of what it must be like living in a favela um, there's been so many films about it showing the gang violence and the drugs and so on um, what is it actually like living right on the edge of one well, technically, we do live in the favela. We just live in a place that they call Findo Mundo, end of the world. So we're the last house uh, in the favela before it goes over to the other side of the hill and onto a different community. But it's true. Before I came to Brazil, I had this idea that if ever you wandered into a favela without meaning to, you'd get kidnapped or you'd get shot immediately. Um, and having spent you know, lived here on and off, sorry, since 2013, spent a lot of time in favelas filming and, and living in them as well. I, I've really come to uh, discover that actually what you see on the news and what you see in films is a very small part of the community. Um, so it's true. They are, uh, there are gangs that operate in them. There are people with guns um, scattered throughout them. But on the whole, that makes up a very small percentage of what is uh, a fairly big community of people just trying to make a living. And uh, unfortunately, because of expensive house prices in Rio, lots of people do end up living in these uh, in these favelas, this sort of informal low-income settlements that you'll see scattered about uh, the city and in the hills above it. So you've settled in pretty well. I mean, what do they make of you, the, the gringo living in the favela? Are there many people, you know, many Westerners who've, who've made their home there? Uh, in this one, no, because we're, uh, we're a little bit off the beaten track here. Um, so I do get called gringo a fair amount. Um, not a term that I love, but, uh, 
<laughs> I, uh, I mistakenly, as a joke, suggested that I, I understood um, racial prejudice because I was often referred to as a gringo. But uh, no, that, that, <laughs> they said that doesn't count. It's not the same. Um, but no, most, <laughs> most people, I think Brazilians in general, the ones that I meet in Rio and the ones I've met in the favela kind of fall into two camps. There's one that absolutely love everything about England and want to speak English with you. And they'll ask you all sorts of oddly specific questions. Who my favorite Doctor Who actor is? Um, who do I think uh, Jack the Ripper really was? Uh, what was my favorite Queen album? Um, uh, Iron Maiden, <laughs> the greatest heavy metal band ever. So you get all of these like really specific questions about England that I, I don't tend to have an answer to. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and that's always nice. And here in the favela, it's often the you, you'll meet kind of younger kids who, who play video games or who study English and, and who want to kind of have a chat, which is very nice. And then the second group is the people who are vis visually disappointed that you're not American because you get this other <laughs> group that absolutely love everything about America. I, I went to a barber's once in Rio to get my beard and hair done. And uh, chatting away with this guy, and we were having this this great conversation. And then uh, we're getting towards the end of the cut, and he's like, "Man, would you mind if I uh, if if I took a photo with you for my Instagram?" And I was like, "No, nah, man, of course, that, you know that would be great." He's like, "Mate, that's awesome! Like, I've I've never cut an American an American person's hair before." And I was like, <laughs> "Oh no, no, I'm not American. I'm English." And his face just <laughs> dropped. Like, I feel like I went from. I don't know, Channing Tatum to Austin Powers in the space of, of two seconds. And, and he just like finished up. He's like, you can pay the girl on the way out. No photo <laughs> left. <laughs> so that's the so other. You, sh you should have just kept quiet. You should have just, you know, yeah, revel in the glory of being yeah. a, a, should, a, an American. Should I said I was from California. My name's Brad or something. So yeah, that's yeah, the, that and, then, and then the other group is you, you get kind of, I think most people are, most people are curious and, and do want to have a chat. Um, and then you get you get some people that are a little bit hostile, um, which is, you know, they'll, they'll... I guess they must be suspicious, aren't they? I mean, they must wonder what on earth you're doing there. Do they think you're a spy or that you're, you've somehow wandered in and you're up to no good? Yeah, I mean, we I lived in a in a different favela before called Santa Marta, which is down in the in in this main part of Rio. And we we did have some issues there because I was doing a lot of filming at the time. It was around the World Cup and the Olympics. And back in those days, I would just wander into favelas with my camera and just film without having cleared anything with anyone, which is just, <laughs> just so dumb. Like I, I obviously wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, do that again. So I had, a, I had a, a little, a few little issues there. But overall, I think, um, like Uber drivers, for example, when I say I'm going to Morro de Castro, they'll kind of look and, you know, double check I've got the address right, and then ask why I'm going there, and then saying, you know, that that could be quite a dangerous place. And I say, well, you know, I've um, I've already visited uh, Paris and New York, so Morda Castro is next on my list. And uh, <laughs> but I mean, what I mean, have you ever felt really uh, scared? I mean, have you have you ever felt threatened in in the community where you live? No, 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 not at all. I kind of realised pretty early on that once you're once you're inside these communities, you're pretty much you're pretty much. Um, as safe as you're going to be anywhere in Rio, if not safer, because any, you know, any, anything that will draw the attention of the police is is a big no-no. So, uh, yeah, once you're here, they you wouldn't you wouldn't get robbed in a favela. You wouldn't have any any sort of issues. 
and the people here, yeah, have, have all been very welcoming and very friendly, and yeah, and as I say, quite curious and, and often want to have a chat at the shops. And um, so, no, it, it's really been a, yeah, it's, it's. It sounds like a really positive experience. It sounds really as though it's something that you've you perhaps weren't expecting. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was, I I've always been very interested in favelas, and from the first time I visited, looking up at them, kind of stretching off as far as the eye can see, with these these um, Lego brick houses all on top of each other, the crazy architecture. Um, so I've always found them very interesting. I've visited a lot through my work. Um, and this one here where we are, Mojo de Castro, is a bit different because it's more it's more spread out. It's a little bit more rural. So you, you get horses and goats and chickens walking up and down the road. Um, and then obviously if you go to the center, of the of the favela, it's it's more as you'd imagine, um, houses all piled on top of each other, people living in very cramped conditions. Um, but no, overall, I would I would recommend anyone visiting a favela if they get the chance. Um, obviously, you know, try and visit with a with a local resident to show you around. But um, yeah, they're just they're just very dynamic and interesting and uh, exciting places. I always I get a, a you know a little rush of of excitement when I see the you know I see a group of guys with guns walking past um, uh-huh. and I, I just can't really I can't really help that I you know I try and have a little peek so but no I've not had any I've not had any any negative uh, experiences here touch wood. I guess we better talk about the, the, the wretched pandemic. I mean this is this is. Uh, yeah, I've been hanging over you and hanging over all of us. And it's been a pretty dire situation in Brazil. Um, you've got over 3 million cases and over 100,000 deaths. Um, so so how are you coping in your part of the city? Um, the, the statistics are quite dire. Has there actually been a lockdown? Well, there's been, there's been lockdown, sort of more or less. Um, yeah, as you said, as of today, 26th of August, 116,000 deaths and three and a half million cases Brazil-wide. So, not been great. Um, and certainly, the the government have taken a, a, a sort of hands-off approach, or rather, putting the economy first. Um, so, in terms of lockdown, certainly the first sort of month. You know, when there was that like COVID excitement, when everything was new and people were freaking out and mass buying toilet roll that that happened here as well and for a while shops did close and social distancing was uh, imposed everyone was in masks public transport stopped but um you know whereas say in europe it seems like you guys had two months of strict lockdown and things have gotten back to normal brazil's pretty much stayed as is and so i feel like we're really suffering from covid fatigue at this point um because although the the cases are still still rising especially in rio at the moment we're, we're doing one of the one of the worst states in the country right now um yeah it's a real hot spot yeah so in the favela there was definitely a couple of weeks where things closed everyone was in masks and people were being very careful pretty much for the last three months things have gotten back to normal except for most people wearing masks in shops, but not so much out on the street. And now I was out yesterday and you're sort of half-half masks in the shop, nobody on the street with them. In Rio itself, um, you're, you're still looking at around, I would say, almost everyone wearing a mask on the street. You're getting temperature treks going into shops and you're getting hand sanitizer 
um, as well. But even that, like I feel, whereas at the beginning it was like when they reopened the shopping malls and stuff, the the guys with the temperature guns were checking everyone. And I saw them yesterday and he would kind of vaguely pointed at a group of people and then everyone would wander in. So this there is there's definitely COVID fatigue at the moment. And I know what you I know what you mean about that um, the sense of excitement at the beginning and how everyone was yeah feeling the urgency and really you know obeying the rules and doing everything they could and how I mean even here um, there is this sense of we've done it you know we've gone through all of that why do we still keep having to plug on at this and 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 here in Europe too and in France and Switzerland um, cases are going up again people have just got too exhausted there's there's almost a sense that you just can't get on top of this thing whatever you do yeah no i i, I agree with that and there's there's definitely the there's this sort of the longer it goes on and the more people recover from it and and the more uh, just un, unclear about a the future and b you know, have we have have we taken the right path? Was should we all have been in mass from the beginning? And that, I guess, living in the, the the heart of the favela where where it's it's overcrowded and it's busy, it must be pretty difficult to do any kind of social distancing. I mean, was that just not a kind of complete no no from the start? Yeah, I mean, the the Brazil's millions of uh, poor, mostly black. Brazilians living in favelas have been impacted the worst by this pandemic. Uh, and you just have to look at the geography of a favela and realize that it's basically impossible to do any kind of social distancing, not just because you've got tens of thousands of people living in a small area, but inside each house, you've got families of six, eight, 10, 12 people all living together. And also people that aren't able to afford the luxury of just taking some time off work or working online. A lot of them um, having to go to work throughout <clears throat> and, as, and using public transport and really putting themselves out in the in the high-risk situations. So, yeah, Brazil's um, favela communities have been pretty badly impacted by this. And they, they did some reports here on the local news looking at the difference between, say, a wealthy white Brazilian and his domestic worker, both catching COVID-19 and then the different routes that they would take through private healthcare, nice hospital, and then public healthcare through the, through the system. And um, yeah, the results unfortunately have been, uh, have been pretty dire for Brazil's um, low income. Yeah. And it hasn't, it hasn't really been helped by the president Bolsonaro, has it? Who's called COVID a little flu and has so downplayed it. Um, uh, what do people think of him these days? Well, it's it's pretty weird, but his uh, his approval ratings have never been higher. Um, so high, in fact, that he himself oh gosh. questioned whether this was fake news. Um, so yeah, the, I think it was in the last two weeks the um, uh, ratings agency or the the data agency here in Brazil released figures that showed that his approval had jumped from thirty two to thirty seven percent, and his disapproval had dropped from forty four to thirty four percent. Um, throughout the last couple of weeks in this pandemic, which is crazy when you think hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Um, that is crazy. Yeah, completely it, crazy. Well, Why? it comes down to, in, a, in simple terms, it comes down to the emergency financial aid that he's provided millions of Brazilians. Um, so he passed uh, and this emergency financial aid, which gives people, it's around $120 a month to millions of Brazilians 
of Brazil's poorest families um, in order for them to help them through this pandemic. So he's, pri he's prioritized the economy from the beginning um, and allowed businesses to stay open. So while the, I guess, the political elite and the media have, have really gone at him saying this is completely nuts, for the poor, it's not been the same thing because they're, they're looking at this as like, well, if we don't work, we're not going to survive. So he's allowing us to keep working. They're seeing it as a good thing. And also, it's meant that these millions of people are suddenly having unprecedented uh, monthly income. Um, and especially in the northeast of the country, which is previously staunchly anti-Bolsonaro, a lot of them are now saying that they would vote for him in future because he's taken these these uh, families who have been on on extreme poverty he's taken them out of it even if it is temporarily so in a very sort of practical sense they're seeing this as somebody who's putting money in their pockets um, and this money is reaching them long before the coronavirus has so they're kind of seeing it as seeing it as uh, as nothing but a good thing that's extraordinary um and where's that money coming from I and mean, who's who's supporting all this is yeah. he bankrupting the economy to keep the economy going <laughs> he may well be yeah a few a few experts have said that uh, this is going to lead to uh, um yeah big problems down the line but um before we sort of go on about bolsonaro being this this massive hero before the pandemic broke out one of his big things was cutting um, financial aid and state support to, to these same millions of Brazilians. Um, he, he cut the Bolsa Familia, which is the, the money that they receive monthly to kind of help the poorest stay afloat. Um, that was the, the measures put in by previous President Lula. Um, so he went in and cut that. And a lot of the families here in the, in the favela were impacted by that. And then when he realized that he would have to give some kind of aid during the pandemic, he was pushing for uh, $35 a month. And thankfully, other politicians in Congress said, no, you, that's just that's not even a helpful amount. No one can live on that. So they forced him to up it to 600 reais or about $120. So the, uh, the thing that he fought tooth and nail against has actually come back to, uh, to win him massive support. So... And even and even he is surprised. That's that's extraordinary. Even even he can't believe his good luck. Yeah, and it's and he's like, he's just, you know, he's he's one of those Trump figures where people see him as, ooh, he's not your typical politician, and he, uh, you know, he's like us, and he speaks mm. his mind, mm. and he's just rude and offensive and sexist and racist, and you know, the <laughs> list the list goes on. It it really is, and it and it's it's also comes amongst a, a general feeling that. I feel people are kind of immune to the scandals. Remember when Obama wore a brown suit on some kind of military uh, military event and people back in the day said this is like a huge lack of respect to the military. And that was the kind of thing that people were up in arms against. And now it's a, it's a weekly, weekly occurrence with people like Trump and Bolsonaro. And he's just been involved in scandals from the beginning, but people don't seem, don't seem that bothered. It's just been a Complete change mindset, hasn't there? Complete, you know, what people expect of their politicians is just so different. It's completely changed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's happened very quickly. Um, and another kind of sort of depressing um, view I saw as a, a Latin American analyst here in, based in Brazil was saying that one of the reasons perhaps uh, to explain this, this support is that um, especially your sort of low-income poor Brazilians uh, judging or uh, consider the uh, coronavirus pandemic, say, like a natural disaster. It's something that happened. It's nobody's fault. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, 
And unfortunately for, say, young black Brazilians, Brazil has 60,000 homicides a year, which is one of the highest in the world outside of a, outside of a, of a war zone. So you get these, these big communities where people die young from preventable diseases. Homicides, a lot carried out by the police, um, happen on a daily basis. And then you get this pandemic that comes in and kills a couple of hundred thousand, and people just kind of see it as, well... That's it's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it, so we may as well. So is take it a, these... a kind of a, a fatalistic attitude to life? Is it yeah. is it that God decides, or I mean, it's it's a strongly Catholic commu- uh, community too, isn't it? Is it just a, a, a put your faith in God and He'll protect you if you're worth protecting? Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, evangelical Christians are the are the big ones, especially in the favelas, uh, which of course Bolsonaro had himself uh, ordained as a as an evangelical minister. Which was a huge, a huge reason, a huge draw to a lot of voters. Um, and yeah, how I think cynical it, is that? That's so cynical, isn't it? Just get yourself, get yourself every possible ticket so that they're going to vote for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he, I'm sure he does believe in God. He's his saying is, "Ooh, I'm going to get this wrong now." But Brazil, uh, uh, Brazil acima de todos. Oh, I can't remember. We'll have to cut that bit out. But basically, he does put God yeah. even above Brazil. So he's. Uh, He's, um, yeah, religion, yeah. religion's a big, a big deal here for sure. Well, look, changing the subject a little bit, um, you're the only gringo in your neighbourhood and you stand out a bit, but you've also uh, <laughs> made yourself stand out even more because instead of supporting Brazil's national sport, which is football, you've been playing your own favourite game, which is rugby. So... Tell me a bit about that and how how you brought rugby into the favela where you're living now. Yeah, well, thankfully, I've had many years of um, pretending to know about football every time you get into a taxi or start chatting with someone at the pub. Uh, and in Brazil, it definitely raises a few eyebrows when you when you say you, you don't like football. Um, so, <laughs> do you dare say that? Yeah, well, no, you just say I don't really like football, or if I do say. Yeah, or that's why I pick a I pick a kind of random English team, um, like Wolverhampton, and then I know that they won't <laughs> they won't know any players, and the conversation will end there. So that's kind of my uh, that's my way out. But instead of that, instead of not just do you not like football, but you you've pushed rugby in a big way. Yeah, well, kind of um, myself and a uh, a friend from university, a rugby friend from university called Rob. Uh, we both came out to Rio at around the same time, and he started a project called One Rio, which works here in Mojo de Castro, um, using rugby as a tool to uh, to help young people in the community. And since then, um, it's sort of branched out into education and language and uh, healthcare. And that's sort of how I came to end up here in Mojo de Castro through the project. And um, yeah, we've been working working for, since 2013, and um, yeah, it's been really interesting seeing seeing the kids sort of grow and uh, you know from from the first obviously over the last couple of years you get kids going from the sort of little tiny ones to now you see them working in shops in the favela and it's uh, what did they think when I mean did they know what rugby was when you started you know what the strange shaped ball in and, and did they know it. No, no, no. It was it was pretty weird. Um, I think they found it quite confusing, and, and especially like 
if you're one person learning a new sport with 20 people that know how to play it, that's fine. But when you've got 20 people who have no idea what they're doing, uh, it did, it, it took a, took a couple of sessions, but no, we've now, um, we've, we've created some very good players who, some of whom have, have gone on to, to play for local clubs and represent the state in, um, in different age groups. So they've, uh, it's taken a while, but we've, um, yeah, I feel, I feel rugby is definitely uh, ingrained into the, uh, into the favela here. And what do they get out of it? What's, I mean, why rugby? What do they get out of it? I mean, it's good fun. Football is not for everyone. Um, you know, we try and teach them all the values of sportsmanship and, and working hard. And um, I'll give you an example of, of where I think our values really, really came through. We took the kids, we were invited to play in a beach rugby tournament against uh, all of the, the private schools from the region. So you have like the Lycée Francais and a, and a few different, you have an international school. And they're uh, mainly Brazilian kids, mainly white, mainly rich. And uh, we went down to play on their pristine beach in Icaraí. And we took our kids down and we were sort of invited as a, you know, wouldn't this be nice to to give the favela kids a run around? And, um, <laughs> and we, we went down there and we absolutely dominated our girls' team, one our under four teams one our under 16s one and then our our sort of senior group got to the final against the school who'd organized it and it was uh, it was a tough game and we i think it was very close and right at the end we got a winning try jubilation all of our kids going completely crazy and then the headmaster mm-hmm. and their coach come over and say we need to see all the documentation for every kid who's played today and so they, in Brazil, they, you have to sign a contract, you have to fill out questionnaires to show you know how the rules, it's all safety bits and bobs. And they wanted to check every single one because they, they were looking for an excuse as to why perhaps they could disqualify us or they thought some of our kids were too old. And this, this wow. led to a big arguments on the beach. We, we'd already showed them, the tournament organizers had seen it, they, they'd signed off on it, it was all fine. And um, yeah, in the end, we had to agree that we that it was a tie, that the, the last game was a tie and that both their team and our team had come in first place. And it was just them unable to come to oh, terms wow. with the fact that the, the, the poor black kids had come down off their favela, off their hill and had beat them in their, in their own tournament. And um, yeah, so just really kind of rotten scenes with the coach shouting and we then um Ooh, not not the gentleman's game that you would hope Ooh. no absolutely not and then our little our little one of our kids frankie frank the tank thomas the frank engine he walked over <laughs> and uh, had his gave his medal to the to this coach to this lady coach and said hey like you know i think this means a lot to you uh, you know i want you to have it in this really nice gesture kind of, we kind of expected her to say no and she just grabbed it off him like i'll take that <laughs> So yeah, she, she, oh my goodness. she obviously had a lot of lesson, but it was yeah. fine. Like our kids yeah. then, you know, you could tell their students were embarrassed. The parents were kind of embarrassed. It was not a good look for the school. And our kids ended up swapping their medals. So gave away their first place ones to the third place ones, uh, second place ones. And it was just, um, you know, like there's these wow. rich, yeah. rich white Brazilians. These kids will probably get their own way in many aspects of life. But on a rugby pitch or on any kind of sporting field, you can't just get your way because you want it. So it should have been a good lesson. But, uh, yeah, there we Sounds go. like a film, actually. You can imagine that being worked into some sort of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, a different view of the of favela life it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. That must have been quite a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
presumably you haven't been able to play rugby throughout this COVID crisis, but I know you've been doing some pretty good work with the kids during this time. I mean, you've been handing out food parcels, all that sort of thing. How, how did how did that go? Yeah, like we've had to stop rugby, obviously, which I think everybody is really missing, um, myself, myself included. There's nothing quite like charging over a, a 14 year old and scoring a try to make yourself feel uh, <laughs> to feel like you're in, <laughs> in better shape than you are but um no we've carried on they've the the online courses have carried on and all of the um the pre-university entrance preparation courses have all been taken online um so that you know they, they've kept they've kept things going in that sense and then yeah we've been taking donations to to provide emergency food packs which we've been we've been doing since the very beginning on a monthly basis, which has been really, really cool. Um, you know, giving them sanitation packs, so uh, personal hygiene stuff, house cleaning mm. products, but then also food, coffee, rice, beans, mayonnaise. You know, you name it. So that's been mm. that's been really helpful, and especially as a lot of these a lot of these kids uh, did lose their government support when Bolsonaro cut cut that before the pandemic and then a lot of them work in informal jobs so that could be anything from you know they run their own nail salon or whatever obviously that all cuts down and even if they do stay open the number of people coming in is vastly reduced so um people have struggled a lot um throughout this that must really help that must really help when um you really feel that you're kind of doing something positive within what must be quite a tough situation um on a personal level george how have you coped um you decided i know pretty early on to impose your own kind of a lockdown and you've been working at home staying away from um people as far as you can pretty much since march i mean how do you manage on a day-to-day level you must be feeling pretty claustrophobic by now yeah i think we just decided uh, the best option wherever possible is to stay out of trouble um, so we do venture out, obviously, to go to the shops. But uh, for the most part, we stay pretty much isolated out in our little um, house in the woods. But as I mentioned earlier, we're we're in a really nice area. We have big hills behind that have beautiful uh, sunsets every night. And uh, I take the dogs up for walks after work. And um, I decided that I would use this time to get in shape. So I started jogging, which I'd not done for uh, many, many years. And um, so, yeah, since April, I, I struggled through my first kilometer. And then a couple of Saturdays ago, I, uh, I managed 10 kilometers. So uh, I have this winding route that takes me oh, through the favela. George, my goodness. So you haven't been you haven't been doing like the rest of us, eating too much, um, taking up bread making, doing, yeah, going mad with the isolation. You seem to have embraced it. Yeah, I think I have. It's really uh, obviously a huge part of it has been able to, uh, because I've been able to carry on working uh, online. Um, but also, you know, you're in a nice place with good people. And um, yeah, I, I've had no complaints really throughout all of this. Um, so is there anything you miss? Is there anything at all that you'd, you'd welcome after this is all over? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, I do a, a barbecue every Saturday. Um, but I, I definitely miss going out to the big 
Brazilian uh, Rodigio restaurants where they they bring around twenty different types of meat on their on on spits and spears. Uh, so definitely yeah, miss miss going out for that kind of thing. And also nights out with friends. There's nothing quite like a uh, a night in Rio, starting off in one part of the city and ending up somewhere completely different to watch the sunrise. Um, so yeah, definitely miss that. Going to the beach. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I love I love Rio and fell in love with it was because you can um, get down to uh, get down to the beach pretty easily to surf or bodyboard or swim. So definitely miss miss all of those. Um, so yeah, as soon as this is over, I think we'll be uh, we'll be heading out. Unfortunately, though, I, I think with Brazil, I, I don't see it. it's going to be over anytime soon. Um, so we'll just have to just have to play it by ear. Having spent one New Year's Eve with you on the beach in Rio, it was amazing. And I can totally yeah. get uh, the feeling you have about wanting to get back down to Copacabana or wh wherever it is. Yeah, and I hope that before too long, I'll be able to come and join you on the beach. Um, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's, it's really been an insight. Um, yeah, and we'll stay in touch. Sounds good. It's been really nice. And uh, yeah, stay safe and we'll, uh, we'll chat soon. That was Staying In with me, Jan Powell. Thank you for listening if you've made it this far. It's been a family affair. A big thank you goes to Hugo Powell for his music, audio production and patience. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do share and subscribe. The next one will be along very soon.